Welcome to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast, where we share practical insights for racial justice and social change. I'm Ross Montgomery. And I am Corey Leak. And today is going to be a little bit different. Typically, we banter about uh, our personal lives, which I guess we will a little bit, but we are coming a day after the election results have been called for president and vice president-elect uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, in fact, we had some technical difficulties. We were less than an hour from the results and we were going to record this interview or this hosting. And now we've had a whole day to kind of sit with it. We've had their remarks from um, last night at the time of this recording, mm-hmm. Saturday night. And uh, we have a lot to sit with. And Corey, I think you have a really unique perspective to bring to, like I said, the personal and the political here mm-hmm. of what's going on. So, you know, this being kind of a, a hope notes side of things here, you know, being real with it. But what gives you hope in this moment right now? Yeah, man. Well, you know, first off, the, I think the the political is always personal. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we kind of in our society are encouraged to make a, a, a separation between those things. And, um, but it's just not possible. You know, so mm-hmm. here I am as um, a father of three uh, black women. Um, you know, married to a black woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my oldest daughter voted for the first time. And for the first time in history, there was someone on the ballot for a significant role in our government that looked like her, that she could identify with. Um, for my youngest daughter, she was glued to the television for like three days, you know, just with the election results. You know, she just she was just watching. She's 14. And she's posting about it on her social media. And she, uh, this morning I saw she posted something. It was a picture of uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And there was a picture of her. And my daughter said, this is a day to remember. Um, so, you know, for me, um, you know, personally, that feels really rich and moving and nostalgic and all of all the feels, right? Uh, but publicly, you know, it's, uh, when I watch people celebrating like they are, it, it feels like, you know what it feels like, Ross? It feels like the end of Return of the Jedi. Hmm. When like, you know, when everybody, when there was fireworks throughout the galaxy, right? That's what, <laughs> or like, you know, the empire had finally fallen. This is, this is what, this is what it feels like right now. Yeah. Anytime you can make a Star Wars reference, I'm a fan. So no, I, I, I get that emotion um, to a certain extent, obviously. I think one question I did have as you were talking about that, you said even your 14 year old was glued. I mean, my oldest, uh, our oldest daughter is seven, but you have teenagers. So I'm curious, like, what have you seen having a, not only having a conversation with a daughter who's of voting age, but even those who are obviously politically aware and potentially active in what they're wanting to do with their lives and how they relate not only to you as their parents, but to the world around them, their friends, their peers. What gives you hope within that? What kind of conversations did you have? What kind of stuff around that, um, you know, took place to, to get to that point, uh, you know, where, the, you know, you're raising individuals, they have their mm-hmm. own individual mm-hmm. views and beliefs and all of that. What mm-hmm. would you say about all that? Well, I think that symbolism is important. And so mm-hmm. I think it's, I'm hopeful that because they have seen, um, you know, a black woman, um, biracial woman, uh, a woman period, um, make her way to the second highest office in the land, 
I think that's hope that's hope for me because now they know that you know at least they can have some belief, I guess, some more belief than they did yesterday that it's possible for them to achieve in the United States, despite the evidence to the contrary that we've seen for, I don't know, 245 years now, you know? So that gives me hope that there's, you know, there's like a North star to some degree of success and dignity and um, uh, power even for them to aspire to. Hmm. That's good. Yeah, I, I always kind of wonder about that because to a certain extent, I feel like especially me being on the young side of things, I'm sure you can remember back as well. You kind of have this fear of, you know, how much do I indoctrinate my kids with of my own mm-hmm. views and biases? Right. And so, right. you know, having uh, the seven-year-old is at a, a point where she is able to have the abstract conversations about that. And so we've talked about the importance. She's super excited when we talk about like, you're living through history right now. Mm. This, this is a historical thing happening, mm. but also, you know, with the sentiment that I'm sure you've seen a lot. I hope a lot of people are seeing this from supporters of the Biden Harris ticket. Yeah, that's great. They're in office. We got someone who caused a lot of destruction and damage in the last four years out, but now we have a lot of work to do on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked about what holding leaders accountable means, how we talked about, you know, they may do something that we don't agree with and we need to make our voice heard and being courageous and brave to do that. So we've had a lot of great conversations about that. And for the listeners who may not know, um, I'm also married to a black woman and our kids are multiracial. So it's, uh, it it does have a little bit of meaning there as well. And so having those conversations with my partner about, you know, what she's feeling, what she's going through, how we celebrate that with our kids. And at the same time, obviously we, we have our own thoughts and opinions and feelings about things, but you know, um, imprinting the right things on, on the children as they're impressionable. And, you know, even to the point where, I did talk about Trump and and the damage he was causing. And my daughter would ask follow-up questions like, what has he done that, that hurt people? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you are asking incredible questions and being able to walk, but also being knowledgeable myself enough, uh, you know, to, to not go down the cliche path as a lot of conservatives and Republicans like to say, well, you just say orange man bad. Well, no, I will. I went specifically (laughs) through. Yeah. I went specifically through. He's orange. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Like that's the only reason that's people. It. It's the only yep. reason we hate him. He's orange. Yeah. It's, it's very uh, one dimensional, but I, you know, I'm able because of, you know, what I've watched and witnessed, I've been able to walk through that with the seven-year-old and kind of try to put it in terms that she understands of like, here's the things that cause damage and how it caused damage. And, you know, at least let her know that you need to do the research to find out the why and not just because, you know, not because I say so, mm-hmm. you know, Mm-hmm. So I think overall, it's very important to kind of keep that in balance as a parent. And as you're being hopeful about things, I've even seen, you know, um, people like propaganda uh, on Twitter saying, you know, it's like, it's not just giving them a pass, giving our leaders a pass. Yes, it's historic. Yes, it's something to celebrate. But now we need to do the real work. I've even had friends of mine remind me that we need to support the people of color who are have those organizations, those nonprofits that are doing work and to invest in them. So I'm, I'm hopeful about that, that we'll start paying attention to more of that now, of the on the ground actions, 
and um, how we can be involved in that. And I know it's tough with COVID, but that's something I really want to be able to show our kids someday is, yeah. yeah, it's great to vote, have your voice heard. It's great to contact your senators and all that. But there are real tangible ways you can do that with your local organizations, state and city level, that kind of thing. And when we can kind of get out and volunteer and do that stuff safely again, I look forward to involving them in that and letting them see what that looks like so they can make their own decision what to get involved in in the future. Yeah. I mean, I just think what you're describing is democracy. You know, that's democracy. And I think, you know, there's a lot of folks that are, you know, kind of on the less hopeful side because Biden is not entirely what any of us probably would have wanted in terms of the systemic change, the right. wholesale systemic change <laughs> they were looking for. Right. But that's what democracy is. We need the person that was there before Biden was really becoming more and more of a dictator. And still, to be honest with you, Ross, the time we're recording this, there's a part of me that's still like, hey, I don't know if we're out the woods yet because this guy mm. is manipulative. Mm. He is a tyrant. He is, um, you know, He's um, all of the things, <laughs> you know, he's right. an emperor. He, he wants power. He will do anything he can to hold on to it. He has convinced mm-hmm. half of the nation to go along with him. Mm. So, you know, to me, when we're talking about Biden versus Trump, it's a no brainer. And we can, again, the democracy side of it is that we as, pe- as people have someone to hold accountable mm-hmm. who I believe is more likely to be accountable than what we've had the last four years. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put that. Yeah, I think I think this transition time is is going to be very interesting as well. And I think it's a tricky line to walk with relationships. Relationally, it's going to be tricky. Um, as a as a nation, it's going to be tricky. Yeah. So we'll see. It's the cautiously hopeful. I've seen some really interesting ways of people putting it nauseatingly hopeful. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. different things mm-hmm. of how we're going forward. So I think all that can apply here, but hopefully getting back to being better about looking out for each other because, you know, I try to let people know when I say I'm for all people, all people like, Mm -hmm. you know, I Mm -hmm. I want conservatives and Republicans to thrive just as much as I do the marginalized, but we need to get that to where, you know, we get that equity going on um, and not holding on to power or any last, last Mm -hmm. uh, gasps of it. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. With that said last year, Andre had a conversation with Latasha Morrison, who uh, has started a wonderful organization now. It's Be the Bridge, which helps people who are ready to be the change and and be the bridge between getting into anti-racist work, helping white people connect with that. Um, As you'll hear in the interview, it's not 101. It's not understanding the terms or anything like that. It's for those who are ready to make the change. They see the problem. They're ready to get into it. And you'll hear a little bit of her story on how all that happened, um, how that got started, uh, and what an important thing that is. So we will chat on the other side of this interview that Andre had with Latasha. Again, this interview happened last year, so there's a little bit of time between it. Um, But you can check out all of what's going on with Be the Bridge in the show notes. Uh, after the interview here with Latasha. Hey, Tasha. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? It's good. It's good to hear your voice and to get some time. Yeah, it's great to hear your voice, too. Thanks for being on the show. 
Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. Tasha, I first encountered your work before I knew you. Uh, okay. Because, I mean, you're so famous online. Everybody knows oh about gosh. Be The Bridge. <laughs> Everybody knows about Be The Bridge. So uh, someone sent this to me. I think this was 2016. Okay. They sent me an invite to Be The Bridge, the Facebook group. And oh, I was, okay. Yeah. And I was in there and I was like, okay, this is very organized, first off. Like, <laughs> there was like, you're not supposed to talk in here for three months. You're supposed <laughs> to pay attention and go through some modules and stuff. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is this is very professional. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, why don't we start there? What, how yeah. did you end up starting Be the Bridge, and what and what what made you say, okay, I've I've got to build this project? Wow, yeah, I I think Be the Bridge came out of my need to see the church be better and do better. And when mm-hmm. I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about people. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it just started with some conversations because I went from a African, a full, um, predominantly African-American church in Atlanta. And then mm-hmm. I was on staff at a um, a brief time at a predominantly white church here in Atlanta. Then I moved to okay. Texas and I was on staff at two churches while I was in Texas. Got it. And so just in that interaction, um, you know, I just saw a lot. And yeah. it was just my taking my experience from the African-American church and then the um, the bridge building that happened in that church, um, then mm-hmm. going into the other space and realizing that, hey, this is not reciprocated. Like it's like you live in your own little world, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and just, you know, if you're on staff and if you're the only person on staff or very few people on staff, you hear comments, people say things and you're like, hmm, like. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh-huh. And, but then it's just like, it's one of those things where, because I care about you, um, I want to make sure that you don't repeat that again, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and truly, and people, you know, it's funny, but I had just my experience, my experience, you know, people uh-huh. were really gracious. Um, and I, and Andre, one of the things that I like to tell people about me, cause I don't want people to feel like, Okay, that's not my story. This is my story. And uh-huh. everybody's, all of our stories are so different, depends on yeah. where we grew up. But naturally, who I am, Latasha Morrison, anybody uh-huh. in my family will tell you before there was any Be the Bridge, before anything else, I've always been a leader. I've always mm-hmm. been a bridge builder. Mm-hmm. And I um, have been a change agent. You know, I've, done stuff like there's there's a track record you know in my life and so that's who I am anyway so for me to go into that a space like that and say "Mm -mm, you can't say that Mm -mm, no 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 Mm -mm." (laughs) (laughs) you're like that's that's very natural for me to do that Uh and you know don't don't ever say that again you know type thing and so (laughs) and I would have conversations with friends and you know explain stuff but that's just who I am and so that's really it really started I call it my accidental organization because Andre who Mm -hmm. signs up for this like we don't sign up for this like you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying we're in this because of the experiences of our life or the places that we've um, had to intersect um, for our own survival so that we can thrive Um, that's why we're in this but nobody really signs up for this much discomfort and pain I mean I I mean maybe some people do but I, I mean, I don't. <laughs> I, mean, I like. I'm not gonna lie. I like comfort, <laughs> you uh-huh. know. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so, um, so this 
this work, being in those spaces just revealed a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the world. Um, yeah. Learned a lot about Texas. Uh-huh. <laughs> a lot about Texas and the history that they teach. Oh my gosh, that has messed people up. I'm like, if we would just teach people factual history, like teach, <laughs> you know, all of the history. Don't just talk about the good things. Talk about right. the full history of a person, whether yeah. it be good or bad. If we yeah. talk about that, that gives people context. And if right. we ta- if we taught this, we would be looking at a different America. Um, but we don't. Right. Um, and lies create ca- chaos. You know, yeah. it allows people to have blinders on and really not understand what's happening in present day because we don't understand historical context. And so yes. I just wanted to have conversations with people. And it started, what I started realizing is that I do all these things like, you know, the movies I look, you know, I know what's on Hallmark channel. I know, mm-hmm. you know, I go see the movies. I used to watch Friends a little bit, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying we're very familiar with that world, but right. um those um, our brothers of European descent <laughs> and sisters mm-hmm. of European, they don't have to intersect into right. our spaces. Right. They don't watch friends. I'm mean, uh, mm-hmm. living uh, live live single. Living single. Yeah. Living single. single I had one friend that knew she would watch. She knew different worlds. She knew all of mm-hmm. it. Like, and it was a person that, and I was shocked by that. And that's a shame that I was shocked. I had one person out of this, this, both of these churches are mega churches that I could connect with that, you know, when I did a color purple joke, she got it, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but normally I would do a color purple joke. And it's like, phew, it goes over someone's head. And I had to tell my friends that, okay, prerequisite, if you're going to be my friend, you're going to have to see, let me run a list down of movies you need to see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so mm-hmm. that, you know, but it's very common for us. And so we just started having those type of conversations. And then when movies would come out, I would invite, friends to go because the same way you invite me to a friend, I mean a movie, then I want to invite you to a movie or a concert. I want you to go with me. And so, and people did like um, one friend told me I invited them to the MLK March they have in Austin, Texas, which is a really big, I mean, one of the largest in the country and one of the Mm. most diverse ones that they have. And um, I know, you know, even the church staff um, came with me one year and they they said, she said, you know, I no one has had ever invited me. I thought it was just something that you did that you didn't want white people to be a part of. And so sometimes it's just about making the invitation. Yep. And they came with me that year. And what I've noticed that since I've left, a lot of some of those friends still continue to go to that MLK march without me there. Hmm. And I like that, you know, because that's what this work is about. Like it's it's a lifestyle, you know, it's not a box mm-hmm. that you check. You know, this mm-hmm. is a when you sign up for this work of racial healing. This is a lifestyle shift. And so that's mm-hmm. what I like to tell people. And um, and so that what those conversations led to me, a friend of mine saying you should create a discussion guide for what we've been doing. Oh, OK. And and this was a this was a, actually a white friend that said that, wow. and um, I created. Uh, I was like, okay, because I started thinking about some of the the, um, the steps we were taking in our um, in our personal group, 
And but still not thinking about an organization, I wrote down, you know, awareness, acknowledgement, like just kind of like the yeah. steps that we had taken. And uh-huh. she said, could you do, I have a conference and if you can do a guide, I just want people to learn from you. Like yes. this has helped me so much. I want people, other people to learn. And um, I was like, okay, I, I'll do a guide. And so she said, you know, kind of do it like our prayer journal that we did last year. You remember that? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, for each day, but I decided to do it like a, a, a month type thing versus a day type thing, like, a you know. And um, and add a little more to it. And I did that. And then she asked me, she said, well, I would love for you to model this this conversation at my conference. We can get some people and we can just Mm kind of bring, you know, have a table up there. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to do that because I'm like, this is, I know her conference. I'd gone the year before and it was a predominantly all white conference. Mm, And it's a very large conference. Got it. And so we have this joke now that I told her after the fact, I said, I really thought you were trying to like, OK, let me get the black girl to talk about race, because if it go wrong, I could just point the finger at her. <laughs> you know, mm. And that's the way that's the way, you know, that's the way I was. I felt we joke about it now. But I was just very leery of having that conversation because, you know, we have this conversation amongst mm-hmm. ourselves, but taking it out. It was one thing to take this out and start doing this at my church and with other people. But then now to take this live on stage. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm also still learning in the process of this, you know? (laughs) I I listen back to some of that and I'll be like, ooh. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) you know, I'm, you know, I'm learning in this process too. And that's really how Be the Bridge came about from that um, conversation. And after that conversation, that God was downloaded like over 10,000 times and it just mm-hmm. took all, all. And so oh, wow. Be the Bridge came out of a need to give leadership to the people who decided that they wanted to do these conversations. But I was still, you know, doing a full time job up until um, to the mid 2017. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how Be The Bridge started, really. And then this became your work. Yes, it became my work because I was on staff at a church and trying Mm -hmm. to do both things and, you know, having to turn down opportunities and then also having to hold back and kind of keep Be The Bridge oppressed a little bit because I couldn't afford for it to take off because I couldn't manage it, you know, and I didn't have any money. It wasn't like, you know, people were downloading the guy, but they weren't like donating, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Um, people were donating time. And there were people who came alongside and said, hey, I'm going to do your graphics or I'm going to build a website or uh, people offering um, business um, advice. Mm -hmm. And then. I had another friend that um, has an organization. They give you like um, startup grants and they gave me a startup grant to start it. And Andre, let me tell you, like all these people, like these were like all white people. Wow. They were all white people. And 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 then they were all majority were white women. You know, I'm I'm a bit surprised because. When I think of bridge building, I usually think of what a lot of white people assume mm-hmm. someone might mean by that, right? And so yeah. in my experience with talking about race, I experience, and I'm sure that you know exactly what I'm about to talk about, mm-hmm. but there are white people that enter a discussion 
Mm. And their posture is kind of like, well, you need to abide by what makes me comfortable if you want me to be on your side, right? Right. Um, uh-huh. Like you, you gotta, you gotta use, you gotta, you should talk to me this way or that way if you want for me to to be your ally in some way. That's often why I tell people like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I hear you. That's often why I don't identify as a bridge builder because I'm yeah. like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to get you to come across over here to me. But you're talking yeah. about bridging with an entirely different type of person. Right? Yes, it's totally different. And I think that's the, the a lot of people see that, you know, in the type of work we do with Be, um, Be the Bridge. When I'm mm-hmm. talking about Be the Bridge, because I our thing is um, Be the Bridge, moving toward racial reconciliation. I'll even explain why I use that word in a minute. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when we say moving towards something, when you're talking about moving towards reconciliation, we know that this is the reordering of things. To, we have to make it right. Like you cannot do it without justice and righteousness, you know? Right. And right. so we cannot do it without reparation. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so we have mm-hmm. to give people this full truth and actually center it on the gospel. Of course, there's going to be naysayers or people argue against this and that. But when we start talking about the true essence of the gospel, and we're talking about moving toward racial reconciliation, that requires a different type of bridge building. That's not the stand on the bridge mm-hmm. with me and kumbaya. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that is come on the bridge. You know, that is be a part of this bridge, but don't, as a white person, you can't take up much space. You know what I'm saying? You right. can't you can't um, take charge of the conversation. And this is the way I tell people. If we were trying to have these conversations about gender um, inequalities and, and sexism in America, and we wanted to invite men into the conversation, and we only gave the men the, the microphones, mm-hmm. how would we feel? Right. So the same way with this type of conversation, this requires a new type of, of bridge building. And so when you mm. think about people died, I always use this example, the San Francisco Bridge, 11 people died building that bridge. Hmm. This work wow. is difficult and there's different ways to build a bridge. There's some bridges that, you know, they start from both sides. There's some bridges they build one side over and then the other side. Some bridges, you know, they some mm-hmm. like there's a, a Inca bridge in Peru. They build from hand, you know, mm-hmm. and everybody's responsible for gathering the materials to build this bridge. I mean, in India, they have living bridges that are that are built from tree roots. You know what I'm saying? So it's like there, we can't box in this element of a bridge building. Right. You know, this is going to look different um, for where we are. But this is the thing I feel like some of this work and why I'm passionate about the work that we do. Um, a lot of Be The Bridge is like a lot. We want people to understand 3.0 and 4.0, but mm-hmm. most people don't even stunt understand 1.0. Right. There's a huge gap in just yes. being race competent. <laughs> yes. People not even understand what race means. Don't right, exactly. better yet, racism. We see that every day on TV where we don't even right. know the, what terms mean. People don't right. understand the difference between ethnicity and race. Like just some of the basic things that create obstacles and right. create barriers in this conversation. So what I wanted to do because of the people I was working with at my church, you had to break stuff stuff down. You had to explain things to them. And so yeah. I was like, we need like an on-ramp. 
for people to kind of learn some of the foundational things that yeah. one of the people who want to learn so that they can go on to understand how this intersects into policy. How does this intersect into your life? How do you make different decisions based off of the information that you know, the history that you know? And so mm-hmm. when we um, go in, you know, we do uh, when we do trainings um, and the reason why I say we do um, anti-racism work with Be The Bridge is our youth our youth division is all based on anti-racism work. It's a value-based um, discussion. And mm-hmm. when we go in, we we talk about culture and, and you know, and all that. Uh, we do all the different types of racism. Like there's words for it that we can name it, <laughs> you know, all the different mm-hmm. multiple types of racism that we see. We give historical context, you know. We talk, we have a whole section on um, what it means to be white. And white identity, white culture, white mm-hmm. privilege, white um, yeah. uh, white supremacy, all those different things we talk about. And then we have our whiteness education and we're developing some stuff for people of color that uh, uh, come out this summer. That's been wow. the hardest one to actually um, write for us. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. That's that's yeah. a challenging one. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. We we have a little bit of time left. I want to make sure that we talk about your book. The yeah. Be the Bridge book is it's out now, right? People can. It's buy out. It. it came out October the fifteenth, um, mm-hmm. and it says pursuing God's heart for racial reconciliation. Um, for me, Andre, that word I understand. You know, there's a, a lot of us that don't. We say, hey, mm-hmm. how can we have reconciliation when there's no been there hasn't been any conciliation? You know, I yeah. totally get it, and I agree with that. I totally understand. But for me, for my personal ministry, there's a mm-hmm. conviction for me that God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. So mm-hmm. I'm calling those things that are not as though they are. You know, Mm -hmm. and so that's just something that for me, that's for me, you know, but I totally get it when people don't um, use that word. And I like to explain that to people. But this book is a cornerstone for our organization and it really gives people steps. I also talk about colorism in here. I tell my story Mm -hmm. as an African-American woman, my childhood stories, you know, um, and Mm -hmm. I really try to lay a, a, a pathway, a blueprint for people for them to um, really have a foundation of racial literacy. And so I do this thing of personal story, historical story, and then a hopeful story, like maybe something that has happened with the lives of people that have been involved in the work that we're doing in Be The Bridge. And so, um, and that I know it's like, you're trying to do a lot in a chapter, but Uh it works. It works. Those stories work. And um, it's been... It's been, I mean, when you put you and you'll know, like uh, some of the work that you're doing now, when you put your all into a book and, you know, you yes. kind of tell, especially when you tell your personal story, <laughs> you uh-huh. feel <laughs> naked, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and sometimes people yeah. mention stuff to me and I'm like, oh yeah, I did put that in the book. Ooh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> And, you know, people were like, how does your mom feel? You know, you're talking about, I was like, oh, she ain't gonna read a book. Right. (laughs) My dad read the book, but my mom will listen to it. And I did tell, I got permission before I did that. Um, But this is, this is an ongoing journey that, you know, I'm on. So it's not like I'm completely on the other side of everything, you know, as it relates to my family. 
to tell the story, you know, my mom still says some crazy stuff. And so, <laughs> so I love her. But, you know, this a lot of this is my story, too. And so I just wanted to have a tool, a resource for people um, to be able to get people in the church. I wanted people of color to have a resource to give people and say, don't ask me all these questions. Huh? Read this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, that, that's really, you know, to give something to empower um, yeah. people of color. So although, you know, when we talk about this work of reconciliation, a lot of it, we're leading these conversations, but we need the tools and resources to do that. And what I wanted to do is come along so many other voices and so many other authors that have done some incredible work before me um, to offer a resource for others that they can give to help explain this on-ramping um, process to um, other people that have a heart um, for racial healing. Yeah. Well, that's so wonderful. I can't wait for more people to, to hear about the work. Um, y'all were just listening, so you know what to do. Get on Google and, and look up uh, Be the Bridge, the book, and make sure you support Latasha's work. But even more than that, like, you know, educate yourself, educate your friends, all that kind of thing. Tasha, it's been so good to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. You too. Thank you so much. So, Corey, one of the things that really stood out to me in this interview that I would love to get your input on, because I think you you have a lot of things to say in general, but I think um, <laughs> this is one of those things that you um, speak out so well about. I think you're very the way the way that you put things is very good. And so one of the things that stuck out, I'd really like to get your opinion on is Latasha talked about. Black people finding connection with other Black people, how they find connection with white people. What are those points of connection of commonality in those spaces that you've been in? And then I'd also love to just know what other thoughts you have surrounding the interview. Yeah, man, there was a lot that she said that that sounded in in her experience that sounded very familiar to me. Mm. My path was from a small AME church when I was about 18 years old, you know, my dad's church to leaving there to go to a more multicultural church, um, which is interesting phrase because that's what, Mm. that was sort of the buzzword, you know, I'm, I'm older, you know, I'm 42 (laughs) years old. So, right. So this is back in like the, the late nineties when multicultural Mm -hmm. church was like the thing. Mm. Um, And we believed that myth, but it's actually, what was actually happening is it was like white people that had learned how to do church that like, you know, that with a little bit of hot sauce and we bought into it. Um, the whole staff was white, though, you know, and the preachers and mm. the guests were always white. We, I don't know that we ever had anybody black come speak um, at this this church that I was a part of. So, um, you know, so I really resonated with her experience coming from black church to white church, and just you know, and, and I hate to re- I hate to be reduce it down to that binary, but just for the sake of people having handles for what I'm talking about, I'm going to name it that way. Like going from the black church. And looking over at the success and the money and the stages and the lights and the the sheer size of the white churches, you thought that they were doing something better than what Mm. the black church was doing. At least I did as as a younger person. And so going into that whole white church experience and working for white churches, it was uh, eye opening. And as as she was describing, like some of the things that people said, uh, you know, any one of us who's been a person of color that's worked in predominantly white spaces 
has experienced exactly what Natasha was talking about. And she didn't have to name this stuff explicitly for us to be like, oh, yeah, I know. My brain, in my, in my mind, I, I instantly went back to some of my experiences. I was back in the boardroom. I was backstage again mm-hmm. and, and li- reliving these things and, and, and these moments. Um, and, I, and I think what Natasha has done with Be The Bridge is so uh, powerful because it, it does, it comes from that place of real, genuine experience so that it's not just someone who, you know, in a, in a sterile lab of racist uh, learning, you know, or anti-racist learning, like just created some stuff that they have no real tangible experience with. She experienced some stuff and from that created the curriculum and the talks and the books. And, and I thought, I just think that's, that's really incredible. Plus, she knows a lot about actual bridges, you know, like I did, I live out here in the Bay Area and I didn't know that 11 people died, you know, building the Golden Gate Bridge. So right. what she called the San Francisco Bridge. I'm going to let that slide because, you know, she never, <laughs> but I just, you know, I thought that was, I thought that was, she, she's a knowledgeable bridge person. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think with, um, you know, having her organization have that name, you've got to have a, you to have make to. that analogy. You, have to. <laughs> you, you know, you have to study bridges. If you're going <laughs> to be, be the bridge. I mean, you have yeah. to. Yeah. I feel like that was, and I, I felt like that was a very powerful metaphor of just kind of, or analogy, whatever word needs to be there. Sometimes yeah. I'm good with words. Sometimes I'm not, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that's a very powerful because, um, because of the work that, that she's doing. And I think whether it's, I think that's one of those things that I caught on again, being the resident white person of hope and hard pills. I just feel lucky not only to hear from people like you or Andre hearing those experiences in interviews, like with Latasha, uh, you, I kind of get that sense of like, yeah, there's, there's some weighted experience behind these words. Uh, it even reminds me of Austin Channing Brown's book. I'm mm-hmm. still here. And so it, it just makes me feel so grateful that y'all are willing to share that, that we can learn from. And, and if anything, I, I just want to encourage people to listen to those words. Mm-hmm. There's that experience behind it. Anytime something's being spoken, there's a truth to it. Again, I don't want to get into the cliche of, you know, you can't argue with lived experience, but you truly can't. And you need to, white people especially need to listen. And I've been accused of being too hard on white people, but I'm speaking <laughs> to myself just as much as anybody <laughs> To be a reminder. So. Yeah, I mean, well, dude, the lived experience thing is, is it, it is an interesting conversation, interesting dynamic, because um, I do think there's a tension to manage with um, arranging our world around people's lived experience and around, you know, data and stats and everything else and science mm-hmm. and all of the things and religion and all of the things that have sort of been a framing for our world. I think those things matter. But I do think that lived experience should most certainly be the trump card when I'm having a conversation with an individual whose story is not mine. They Mm. get to write that story. I don't Mm -hmm. get to edit it. I don't get to add my two cents. I don't get to write a plot twist at the end of it. It's their story. I listen to it and I do something with that story. I show empathy towards that story. I... I, you know, I, I, I change the way I view a certain thing based on the story. But the last mm-hmm. thing that I should ever do is take someone's story and be like, well, you know, I don't like that story. And, you know, and, and I think there should be a different ending to it. That's just that's not my mm-hmm. place. 
Right. Right. I think that's a good way to put it. You don't try to edit that story. You don't try to, their emotions, their reactions are legitimate and valid, mm -hmm. even if they're coming from a completely different place than you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, cause I've, I've even heard of, and I've been trying to challenge myself with just starting with questions instead of assumptions. Yeah. Why did yeah. it make you feel that way? Yeah. You know, what caused that reaction in you? Yeah. You know, and and really talking through it just to let them have the space to to say those things without judgment, even again, if it looks completely different or you don't agree with them, um, you know, in a lot of things, it's it's important to listen instead of becoming incendiary, which um or yeah. dismissive. Yeah, well, especially when this when the experiences have multiple witnesses saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. So in in you know Good point. in Latasha's case, like when you're talking about the you know her experience in the, in predominantly white churches, and you're talking about my experience in predominantly white churches, and other uh, people of color's experience in predominantly white churches, when they get together and and all of the uh, stories are comparable, especially to me, this is especially important for people of faith, for Christians especially, right? If you are if a person is comes from the Christian tradition. Your entire belief structure is built around the fact that several people wrote down their stories and several witnesses said similar things. Not the same thing. Even the Gospels, there's four different Gospels, different takes on the same events. And you, what you do with that is, I believe something as impossible as a person rising from the dead because four people told me a story in different ways. How much more then should especially white Christians be listening to black folks, thousands of black folks who said, this is my experience with white people, especially white evangelicals in white evangelical churches. And I come from that tradition. I think that's one of the most powerful ways I've ever heard it put, because that's one of the things that, that is taught to us, especially with, um, Again, some some of our listeners may not be familiar with the word apologetics, but that is one thing that's very important in white evangelical circles is being able to defend the faith. And that's one of the points that's brought up mm -hmm. is even if they don't exactly match, there is this story telling the same thing from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And that, I believe, to be honest, helped me try to practice humility and listen to my family and friends, um, my black family and friends, my family and friends of color that mm -hmm. have these different experiences that that's, you know, we're, we're told that there were these different experiences. And I just, I really love that you said that because you've said it succinctly and <laughs> it's very impactful. <laughs> like that's, that's super, I don't know. I just don't want people to miss that. And I think it's super important to put it that way, which also makes me wonder what you would have to say, because I had another thought during Latasha's when she was talking about, you know, getting the invitation for the conference mm -hmm. and, and thinking that it was just, OK, I'm going to have my black friend speak on mm -hmm. race. And it's this, mm -hmm. you know, that way I can throw them under the bus if it goes sideways right, with right, this room right, full right. of white women. Right. I've, you know, I've kind of heard some things said about the difference between inclusion and invitation, especially as diversity and inclusion is being a huge topic throughout companies, brands, you know, all these big top level places are talking about this, making strides to do it. Um, I've personally seen and experienced some in very large corporations doing this type of thing, um, like 
again, I, again, not a sponsor, but State Farm Insurance has recently hired a diversity inclusion. An insurance company mm-hmm. is talking about it and making mm-hmm. space for that. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious of what your thought is looking at inclusion, like how churches, how organizations, how companies are tackling the topic of inclusion and what that means. Are they truly inviting that person as them whole selves into that space? Or, you know, again, we can kind of get to that checkbox thing. Are they just checking off a box to, to have the appearance of inclusion? Oh God, that's such a big, that's such a big issue because, um, you know, like I've, like I said, you know, speaking about, you know, Kamala Harris, um, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris, Madam Vice President Kamala Harris, right? <laughs> like that it matters, the visual of that matters. So at, at a certain level, we, we have to accept that reality that we are in a, a, a situation, in an environment, in a place, in our society where what a person looks like being out front does matter, right? So I think it's, it's tough because the tension to manage is, is that the only reason that the person is there, right? It like, you know, with, with, with Tasha talking about like, you know, did she have me there just because I'm black? Just, so again, and to take the fall, that to me was another layer of it that I hadn't even mm. ever even, you know, thought about before like it's like you can go well i mean you know it was her it wasn't us and that separation i think is part of is part mm. of the problem is that i'm not actually fully invested in it because to be fully okay. invested in it is to say i i am partnering with a black person or a person of color to speak on this issue and i am my fate is their fate you know what I'm saying? It's not like it's not this like thing where it's like, you know, I'm I'm detached from it. Here, you guys go handle the race stuff and let me know how it turns out. That's the, that mm-hmm. tends to be the approach for a lot of white evangelicals and, and a lot of lead uh, pastors in these white evangelical churches. It's like they let's let's create a subcommittee with black and brown folks to deal with the race stuff while we deal with the more important issues of the gospel. You know I'm saying mm-hmm. like so mm-hmm. to me, I think that like that. That whole disconnect, it was powerful that she brought that up because that is that is a, a way of 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 disconnecting myself from the messiness of it. And I can have Latasha or Andre or Corey or some other person of color be the scapegoat when inevitably white people become upset because you started talking about something that hit too close to home in their own personal feelings about race and ethnicity. Right. Right. Because I've heard a lot of people of white people, I even had personal conversations. So I'm not just saying this out of thin air, say that they feel like they, again, it goes into that thought of white people fear becoming the minority Mm -hmm. and they feel like there's no place for them because of equity is being, you know, sought after and so it's like well we've dominated these spaces so we need there's more room like there's more room and so it's just trying to kind of get across that idea because one of the things that stuck out to me too right after latasha mentioned that uh, she talked about how white people invested into her 
to get build the bridge, like with the loans, with the the grants, I think was what she said that that they help with and providing resources. Yeah, and yeah. because again, impact over intent in a lot of ways of, you know, it, to, from what it sounded like in her interview, the white people were not trying to be the white saviors saying that, you know, they were the center of the story. They were not trying to, it's not, it's not a um, blindside kind of, you know, plot line. Mm -hmm. It's, they were just, we have these resources and we want to, you know, our access to them. We want you to have that so that you can build this thing that you obviously have naturally fallen into. Yeah. So, because I think a lot of times, White people might, and again, speaking to myself here, <laughs> I'll be the, 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 the white voice in this conversation, obviously, but like not falling into the trap of thinking that, oh, good for me. I'm the good white person because I offered this one thing. Well, make a habit of that. Hmm. If you have resources to being able to get grants, how can you position that leverage hmm. to help people of color get into those spaces as well? Have that benefit them? You know, what does it look like for white people to invest? That's the question that kept coming up and over and over for me throughout that section of the conversation was, yeah, inviting them to conferences. But again, inviting, bringing them their whole selves mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. putting yourself on the line for that, not so that they can be a scapegoat if things go sideways. But you're saying, I trust this person, whether you agree with it or not, I'm standing fully behind them, yeah. like putting your reputation, your stuff on the line, your resources on the line to further, uh, you know, whether it's black led organizations or individual black yeah. and, uh, people of color. So that really stuck out to me too, is we got to think about the way we invest in things yeah. uh, as white people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and she also talked about, um, you know, I love the section where her and Andre were talking about the, you know, some of the misnomers about racial reconciliation and, and mm. when, it's seemingly white folks will try to get in the driver's seat of that process. Exactly. Right? And then Natasha making the distinction between, you know, singing Kumbaya and actually building a bridge, right? Building a bridge is <laughs> right. work. And I think that a lot of, a lot of, especially, you know, just given that Natasha's, Latasha, sorry, Latasha's <laughs> coming out of that, like, um, you know, white evangelical church experience and speaking to people in those spaces, mm. um, you know, a lot of, Christians want to stand on a bridge of reconciliation, but they don't actually want to build one. And that's what she was mm. talking about, right? That like, you know, this is work. And in this work, you as white people also, what I love that she said was you can't take up too much space on the bridge. And you mm. kind of name that, right? With this, this, this uh, sense of white saviorism or, um, or, or even too much white centering and, and the fragility that shows up that, that, you know, we have to take time to, cajole and, and console you like when it comes to how you feel about you know discovering how racist your family has been and everything else and that's just more work for us we're trying to build mm -hmm. a bridge right mm -hmm. we're trying to build a new way of being in the world that is inclusive of everyone we can't keep stopping to like give white folks hugs because they feel sad about racism right and so that's that there's all of these ways that i think white folks cannot take up too much space on the bridge um, while also, as you said, being significantly invested in the work that's going on. No, it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be this way, doesn't have to be, no, it doesn't have to be this way. So 
Let's get into some hard pills. I mean, we've been pretty blunt, I think, um, but we can definitely uh, have some things that need to happen. And I think one of the things like I was um, just mentioning was kind of the top of my list was why people need to practice listening first. And I say that more to myself, too, because Latasha, you know, talking on convincing people, she's not here to remove the skills from your eyes. You know, she's here to get going. So I think that's my first hard pills is why people need to listen. You can come with the questions again, come to me with those questions. But if you're going to follow people of color, if you're going to follow the lead of black people, you need to listen first and absorb what's being said before you spout off your opinion or ideas you have on it, on a topic that black, black people, people of color are leading. So that'd be my first hard pill. Yeah. I mean, I think another hard pill is, is just as I've been listening to you talk about, you know, how white, how white folks approach this work and thinking about my own journey approaching patriarchy and, you know, mm. all of learning, um, you know, what, what I, how I show up in spaces um, as a hetero um, cisgendered male, mm. you know, good point. Like, so, so for me, I think that the hard pill is humility is that every, mm. every one of us has to approach things like this with genuine humility mm. and part of humility is, is, is recognizing when I need to say, I'm sorry, mm. asking myself, do I have people around me who can speak hard truth to me? Mm. Um, because so many people position of, uh, we've just seen this in the white house, how people can get positioned in a way that no one can tell you the truth. No one can tell you that mm. you've got uh, you know, food in your teeth. Like no, no one can, no, no one dare approach you to tell you the hard truths that you need to hear because you don't have humility. And I think it's such an important part of society moving forward and being more uh, equitable and inclusive and truly diverse is that all of us have to have a sense of humility with how we go about bringing change. Yeah, I think that's super important I, because one of the things that even struck me uh, through this whole process uh, for myself is again, I'm, you know, my partner is black and there's even been times where I've kind of made a misstep and even she was kind of trying to figure out how to approach that with me. Mm. And I'm like, how have I not made this more clear that you can call me out on that kind of stuff? Mm. So even that I had to humble myself and be like, she didn't even feel like at the moment she could bring mm -hmm. that up. And what do I need to do to make that easier yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. future? Was there, was there anything I did that hindered that? What did I do to hinder yeah. the open communication about that in that moment? That's a good question. And so, yeah. So it's like the self-reflection that was literally my, you said my, my second hard pill was speaking truth isn't comfortable. Mm. You know, we can find ourselves in the emperor has no clothes kind of situations. Mm. And we just need to really be okay with the truth isn't comfortable to our ears sometimes. And, you know, Mike McCarr, a good friend of Andre's, is very good about the sitting with those emotions you're feeling. Stop mm -hmm. and take stock of what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. And then proceed. Like, yeah. you know, we try to teach our children how to manage emotions. I think sometimes, you know, myself and I think uh, at large, a lot of people can kind of let that get in the way of some of how you respond to things you you react instead of respond and mm, yeah. i'm really trying in my own life to be better at responding so but but also taking those hard truths like 
And again, I try to make it clear, all my black family and friends have 100% permission to call me out on things I have. I've had to make those apologies uh, individually on a a one-to-one level, as well as kind of in the public social media space. And so trying to figure out the best way to respond and what a proper apology looks like, you know, that's just as important, not only to realize you've made the mistake, but to make a good apology. Mm. Uh, Yeah, for sure. That kind of thing. I mean, I I don't know when we kind of touched on already. I don't, I mean, you know, I think, I think it's important probably to reinforce the, you know, it's work, you know, Mm -hmm. that it's not like, um, it's not just about conversations only. It's, Mm. uh, it's not just about, you know, checking a box to make you feel better about doing something. It's not about performative, um, you know, work, whether that be, you know, if you take care of someone who is homeless or you, um, you know, you advocate for someone who Mm. needs you to advocate for them. Those are not moments to do what they call in Hollywood, the, the uh, hero pose. What's interesting, Mm. actually, you know, the, my, my uncle, uh, my wife's uncle works in, in, and uh, he's an assistant director who's been working in Hollywood for the last, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years, mm. um, worked on quite a few movies. And, and I had him um, do a session at a church I was working at for a bunch of the creatives. And he actually described the hero pose that like you see in movies that they actually take the camera and they, they, they position it in such a way that it makes the character look bigger than they actually are. Mm-hmm. And we have that sort of performance happening with good works in our society. People go on Instagram and, and, and show what they're doing. It's a hero pose. And in the end, it makes you look great, but you, you become the center of the story. And I think actually trying to help people who need help, lift people up who don't normally get heard, is not about you positioning yourself, but it's about positioning them. And that's, that's a hard pill for all of us because all mm-hmm. of us want to take credit for stuff that we do that's cool, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's relevant, that's whatever. But, you know, I think it's, it, it's, the, it's more important that we move out of the way and that we center mm-hmm. the people that we're trying to advocate for. And that's it right there. You said it better than I ever could. And I love that hero pose analogy um, because that's, you must have been looking at my notes that I had because that's literally my last uh, hard pill that <laughs> I, I had was. I keep still, I'm, I'm cheating off your I, paper, man. Oh, don't. <laughs> we're, it, hey, we're both on the same page with that. And I'm more than happy to be on the same page with Corey League. So, you know, because to be anti-racist like, is, is a little bit of a summary. My hard pill is a little bit of a summary. What we've been talking about is to be anti-racist, especially if you have black friends, people of color in your life that you consider friends, true friends, mm-hmm. not someone you speak at the water cooler with at work, right. um, not, not your barista, not anybody barista. like that. <laughs> yeah. Not, not these surface level acquaintances, but someone you have truly are friends mm-hmm. with in your life, family. I mean, family, if you have family that has adopted black children or uh, children of color, then you will need to look at that in a different lens. Um, it's going to take work. It's going to take the initiative to speak up. You know, it's definitely hard if it's a family member that has a kid, cause they're going to think I'm parenting them the way I need to parent them. But <laughs> don't again, tell me how to raise my kids. Yes, exactly. But you know, it's going to take initiative to speak up more than just social media. I think there's the conversations that you'll need to have, um, face to face. That's hard now with COVID, but maybe zoom to zoom. You can do yeah. that. Um, investing again, like you said, not making it about yourselves, getting, you know, not asking, not just saying, here's, here's what I have. You want it, obviously. So I'm going to give it to you, 
maybe saying, here's the resources I have to offer. Yeah. Would any of these benefit you? Yeah. Or what do you need? Literally, oh, okay, I can do this and that. I have the resources to do this and that, you know, out of those list of needs that you have. Like, and and again, not making yourself at this, look what I did Instagram post, right. but just don't post about it, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, like I said earlier, I've seen that interesting thing of inviting being kind of more of the bring bringing the fullness of the black experience of uh, the indigenous experience yes. to the spaces that have typically been dominated by whiteness and letting those voices have the microphone uh, without your hand on it, yeah. you know, not ready to take it away, but fully letting them be themselves and the, and everything like that. It's going to take some work. And I think that's going to be one of the most important things for, uh, and again, it's not, white people can speak to other white people. We have those circle of influences, you know, that we have, that we can speak on. Um, but again, this is not the time for us to be us white people. I say is when I mean, I, when I say that it's not as time for us to be the center of the story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. but the, you know, I think some of the questions that I would want to ask and, and I think a new listener would be able to ask themselves or even pass along if they share this episode would be, as you're thinking about a journey into anti-racism, if you consider yourself on the path in anti-racism, what caused you to have the motivation to take action? What can you do today to invest in black people and in organizations, indigenous people and in organizations, people of color, the organizations they run or the individual um, the individual initiatives that they are running. What can you do to invest in those today? And then the last thing I would ask is, are you doing the things to position yourself humbly to allow those people in your life or the people that you are learning from to have the space to fully be themselves, that there's no tone policing, there's no expectation of any kind of you have to fit in this box in order to be received this way in my circle as, with me as a friend. What are you doing to break down those walls so that they can be fully themselves in your white circles? Mm. Well, Corey, I do always appreciate your words and I feel most blessed when I get to hear them. Oh, um, so where can people be blessed themselves to find more from you and the things you're involved with? Yeah, I mean, they can... Uh, follow me on Instagram. I'm I'm at uh, at Corey Evan Leak on Instagram. I almost forgot my own handle. Um, <laughs> and then there's the Existential Podcast. It's also on Instagram. It's the ex, you know Existential Podcast. You can listen to that podcast. Um, and as you mentioned before, there's a Patreon community that people can um, become a part of it should they like. And and also check out our Existential Sundays. Every Sunday we do a, a live. Um, actually, this Sunday. We're actually talking to um, Andre Henry this Sunday. So there you go. Yeah. That's going to be a conversation I'm tuning in for. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Corey, I do appreciate you. I I, um, I love what you're doing and uh, everything everything that you are speaking on. And I just I'm just glad you're sharing it so that I can I can be a, a just soak it up like a sponge. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. 
Leaving a rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our incredible patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Heart Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. We are grateful for you as a listener, and we love being able to provide conversations with these incredible guests for free without ads. If you want to be a part of supporting the work with not only the podcast, but with all Hope and Heart Pills is doing, your best option is to join the Patreon. Look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can follow Corey Leak at Corey Evan Leak on Instagram and Facebook and Corey Evan Music on Twitter. Corey is spelled C-O-R-E-Y. You'll also find links to his existential podcast and Patreon there. I am on Instagram and Twitter at Roscoe Jones. Roscoe is spelled R-O-S-C-O-E. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Heart Pills podcast. See you next time.